Welcome to Ban This Podcast, where we discuss taboo topics and have some really exciting conversations like today with Ko, who is here to talk with Drew about what it's like actually to grow up in a polyamorous household, which means basically that uh, Ko's parents had more than one partner, possibly at the same time, and they discuss what it's like to grow up in this kind of environment and what it's like uh, to basically discover your sexuality yourself as a child and then growing into young adulthood in this kind of context. Uh, It's a very rich, I think, very empathetic and interesting conversation, so I hope you enjoy it. Uh, All the way back to childhood. Okay, Yeah, yeah, even toddlerhood, I suppose. And you said that you started exploring this topic because you are second generation? (laughs) Yeah, I'm second generation. (laughs) Explain Um, what you mean by that. So I grew up in a sex-positive polyamorous family. Weird. Well, <laughs> right to you no i know to most people i'd say yeah <laughs> i think like it's definitely weird in, in an uncommon way but i know mm-hmm. in a way that's like i don't know it was better than my upbringing if yeah. i'm being honest yeah yeah, yeah absolutely okay but, i mean i tend to agree yeah. but i also do recognize that it is not the dominant way that people have grown up and For sure. so um there were a lot of pieces that i'm excited to talk about today that i circumnavigated around sexual shame body shame um uh, communication that I find really damaging for most adults that I interact with nowadays. Agreed. Um, but yeah, so I also, I am a sex educator myself. Um, and then in my like day job life, I have predominantly worked with children in childcare, in schools, in uh, summer camp settings, in like all sorts of ways. I really, I find kids way more interesting than adults for my day, <laughs> my day job. And And so the two sort of married themselves together in this way of, like, how do we support kids and youth and teens in discovering their own sexuality without shaming them, um, also still while keeping them safe from any unwanted sexuality throughout their growing up? Because I think that's a big fear for people. One of the reasons that this is a a taboo topic (laughs) is folks are like, but safety! And I'm like, absolutely safety. Absolutely, yeah. Safety first. Yeah, yeah, safety first, but not to the detriment of somebody's developing a positive rapport with it for themselves. This topic is particularly relevant to me personally for a couple of reasons. Okay. First of all, I have a niece who's been humping her car seat since she was two and a half. And her parents outright shame her about it constantly. Mm. And it's horrible to watch and impossible to intervene on Mm -hmm. and so that's a particularly tough situation but that goes hand in hand because it's my brother's son and him and i were also sex shamed when we were kids Mm -hmm. so from anything sexual before marriage and all that stuff so it was all very not great so i'd love to hear what what it sounds like when it is great you know what i mean yeah absolutely yeah that's that is a tough situation and uh it's not uncommon for specifically like toddlers and youth to find the most the items that are most comforting in their world to be the ones that they tend to um, associate pleasure with first right right so is it i mean at that age is it sexual or what is that um i would say that it's gratifying but it's not erotic interesting so when you're under the age of six you are intaking all sensation pretty much simultaneously and uh, equally. You right. haven't quite learned how to filter your sensations yet. And you're still exploring your body. And there's <laughs> so much of your body to explore. Right. So it's a lot like, wow, what what happened? You know that phase when like 
a toddler needs to like touch everything and put everything in their mouth. Right, yeah. It's like that, <laughs> yeah. right? So it's like, there's this part of my body. It does a bunch of different weird things. <laughs> um, and, and there seems to be a lot of pleasure or good, not even pleasure, but good feeling that comes from stimulating it or rubbing it on things or, or not even just the genitals, but how does your body sensate good and how does your body sensate bad? Right. And what does that mean? So I have this anecdote where, um, and this is a, a, an example of like positive ways to engage with that. So like, you know, when you're watching TV and you just like idly put your hands on your genitals and mm-hmm. you're just like holding yourself sure. or like just, just touching yourself. Or sometimes I'll put a hand on a titty. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. You know, you're just like doing a little, little nip rub, um, right. something like that. So I was doing that as a toddler mm-hmm. on the couch. But I was, like, fully splayed on the couch (laughs) watching The Little Mermaid. And my mom comes in, and she was like, okay. So she says, sweetie, um, so what you're doing right now, in the way that you're touching yourself, is totally fine. Um, And it probably feels good, right? And I said, yes. Mm -hmm. And she goes, that's great. That particular way that we touch ourselves can make other people feel uncomfortable. And uh, interesting. it's something that you may want privacy for later. So if we can come up with a compromise, we do that in our room with the door closed and we wash our hands afterward. And wow. Like, and that- Jesus, that is so much different than my upbringing. <laughs> what happened the first I time wanted- you got caught masturbating? I- oh my God. It was, it was public sh- It was public shaming is what it was. Really? I was brought out in front of the whole family and yeah, it was... Uh, I wish I had a weird child at all. <laughs> yeah, no, um, my dad like monitored the web traffic and stuff like that. And yeah. he started bringing up the porn I was looking at and like pointing to each one and telling me how I'm going to go to hell if I don't ask Jesus for forgiveness and stuff like that. And wow. I was very, yeah, it, it was not convincing cause it was like, <laughs> it seemed like a fat pile of bullshit and, and it was like so negative mm-hmm. and, Kind of the exact opposite of what you just described. <laughs> right. And this is when I was a teenager when I can communicate. Yeah. So I was like... Mm-hmm. Hmm. No, it totally makes sense. So like a couple of tips that I would say is like rationality mm. and um, and just good boundary setting. And like explain to children why a thing. Yeah. Right? Like Let them know the why. Let them know the why. Children can perceive verbally... Two years beyond their chronological age, so some studies say. Right? So use big words with children. Like explain different concepts. There was a youth that or a kiddo that I was babysitting for a little while back who like has awesome, super feminist, sex positive parents. And we always referred to um, this child's body and they would say, like, my vulva needs something. And I would be like <laughs> okay you know like it was awesome like there's nothing better in my mind than to hear a four-year-old be able to speak about their body Mm. in positive understood anatomical terms right instead of getting like a weird nickname for it and like pretending it doesn't exist right exactly because it dissociates (laughs) yeah absolutely that's that's entirely what those are meant to do is infantilize Mm -hmm. and dissociate and then you get to being an adult and you're trying to engage with this part of your body and you're trying to go and like buy your own menstrual products for the first time and you don't know how to talk about your anatomy or yeah. you don't know where your vagina is because you don't know what part of it it is. Mm-hmm. Or like, or like I would say for penis owners, like 
trying to fit um like a condom size yeah you know like it's and a struggle knowing, and knowing why that's important it's right? not as big of a tr- struggle as like a bra size but still <laughs> <laughs> different struggles different struggles yeah <laughs> so um growing up your parents were both poly and kinky and obviously sex positive because those kind of have to go hand in hand um <laughs> yes that's, or no that's a whole different whole different what podcast you... <laughs> but yeah all of my parents so uh-huh. not i had more than two right um yeah they were um not all were kinky okay all were poly um all were sex positive and also polyamory and sex positivity doesn't always necessarily intersect either which For is sure. one of the ways that i do find myself very lucky and mm-hmm. privileged and happy is that <laughs> my parents would like like when I caught them, when I caught them, like we would be coming in in the morning and like wanting cuddles, right? Uh. And so we would bust through the door and we would see three people in the bed and no clothes, like under the blankets. And mm. their response would be, why didn't you knock? Mm. And we would be like, oh crap, we caught... So we would go out of the room, close the door, they would arrange themselves, put on some PJs, right. and then we would knock, and then we would get cuddles with all of them. Oh. So, yeah, um, my my growing up was awesome and confusing sometimes. Sure. Um, I did, like, I know who my bio parents are. Um, I primarily have lived with my biological mother. My mother and my biological father, um, they like, they found that they're good life partners, but they're not good romantically Mm. and they can't live together. Right. Um, I mean, occasionally as roommates, but like they never, my household didn't have the like mom and dad figure in the same house for the predominancy of my life. But my, my other moms, I have two other moms and my uncle, uh, one of my other moms is married to my uncle. Um, so we, we really did have, like, they were close by and my dad was very much in my life. And so there was a network of parents around me and I have, um, non-biological siblings who I have absolutely grown up with. Mm. Um, and like, so there were some really cool moments, like having, always knowing that there would be somebody on the emergency contacts list who was available <laughs> to pick you up at right. school. Right, because there's sick. more options. Oh, totally. <laughs> or like, um, but then there was also some confusing moments, like when, like all the parents would really have to be in communication with each other about what was, what the rule was or, you know, what they said so the the kids wouldn't like split them up and say like, well, mom said this and uncle mm. Jim said that and blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, and then there were just times when, um, like my parents would be dating people that I would get really attached to and then they would break up. Mm. And m- that happened mostly with my dad, but my dad was also awesome about noting that like, if I wanted a relationship with this person, mm. then I could still have that even mm. though their relationship didn't quite work out. And I still have incredible people in my life who I consider like adult mentors and friends um, because of the way that they set that up. Wow. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. It was not easy. Yeah. And also I kind of became the barometer for like whether my parents, like whether the relationship was going to work out with this kind of person. <laughs> it took them a while, but then it was like, oh, the kid doesn't like them. I should see that as a sign. Right. <laughs> Yeah. I, I do the same thing with my dog. Oh, Maybe yeah. it's a little bit different. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Earlier when you were talking about the toddler story, you mm-hmm. said that your mom 
uh, well, one of your moms was talking about um, a compromise. Mm-hmm. Was that a pretty common practice? Um, yeah, at least in my family, there were, because we knew we were weird, right? Right. Um, there were talks about, like, how we interact with the family mm-hmm. and, like, in our community. Because uh, I grew up in Seattle, and in Seattle in the 90s and 2000s... It's pretty weird, right? It was, it's, yeah. yeah. I mean, but also specifically, it's a very poly town. Oh, really? There, oh, yeah. Oh, I there didn't are know that. tons of polyamorous people there. Oh, and so there cool. were other households and other communities. And so there are certain spaces where you could act a certain way, talk about certain stuff, but we also actually had to have the talk when I was young about putting on a different face Mm -hmm. or like talking differently um, when I was at school, you know, or when I was around our relatives or things. So one of the biggest compromises ended up being for me having to sort of live with two different faces. Mm. And I've never been really good at it. Same, <laughs> same. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, and it's also a way of, uh, one, talking about boundaries, and two, n- like, I never got it because I said so from my parents. Oh my God, I got that all the time. <laughs> that was like exclusively the answer. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, as a kid, didn't like it. <laughs> right, because again, you don't have the why. Yeah. The why is because I said so, but because I said so builds up the parent builds up the parent to be this all-knowing entity who then when you become older and becomes an actual human yep there's so much distrust there that resentment grows totally because that facade drops and you're like oh shit they're not perfect mm -hmm, exactly (laughs) and like sometimes sometimes oh so my mom had this thing where um and this would happen all the time where i would come to her with a question and she would say, give me an answer. And I would say, well, why? She'd give me an answer. And I would continue to ask her course, why until yeah. the end of time. So she instituted a three whys rule. Mm. If I couldn't get a satisfactory answer within three questionings of why, then one, the concept was too big and we had to talk about it more later. Like I had to go and chew on what I had gotten and right. come back later. Or she, I had to find it somewhere else. And mm. because the internet was not as much of a thing in those days, it was predominantly books or my other parents, mm. right? Or things like that. Um, and that actually brings up something that was really common and I think is a, a solid tool for when you're trying to, like, how do you create a sex-positive atmosphere in a child-rearing space? Um, let the youth come to you. Totally. Let them come to you with their questions and don't, like force feed dogma on them. Yeah. Um, and so that was, and answered their questions specifically. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. So like whenever I came, to, like she always let me know that she was open to answering anything mm-hmm. that I couldn't freak her out with a question, which like I tested that theory. Um, <laughs> let's be real. But, uh, yeah, that was a really solid way for her, for me to let her know where I was at in my interests and development. Mm-hmm. So when she started noticing that I had a lot of questions about sex, because yeah. I also happened to be a very sexually curious young human, that um, she she knew how to develop more and more of the, um, the culture and space that I was growing up in to be more sex positive. Regarding kids asking questions, doing the why thing, mm-hmm. I heard one other technique, somebody was saying like, have the kid ask a specific why question, not just why. So oh. why about this? You know what I mean? And it really makes them tease out what they're asking. I love that. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Great. So growing up with a bunch of parents and in a poly kinky, you know, open, you know, sex positive environment, does that automatically make you all of those things? 
No. <laughs> Are you all of those things? Yes. <laughs> it just wasn't automatic. And he, so here's the thing. Like, you don't automatically um, take on the identities of your parents. Totally. Right? Yeah. You didn't take on the identities of your parents. Not at all. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, um, but I remember very specifically having to think about these things. Um, also because I had other people in my life who were like, I have this one uncle who's like, don't give up on monogamy. And I'm like, okay, sure. <laughs> um, I've never been in a monogamous relationship, but I'm not closed to the opportunity. I'm not closed I to am. the idea. Great. <laughs> but, but I've been in one. Great. Yeah. Um, that, again, like whole other podcast. Right. But like, I, I remembered really specifically thinking about monogamy in this case and I was watching Jerry Maguire (laughs) and this movie's ridiculous Uh and so eventually like Tom Cruise is all wet on a doorstep like like just groveling at this girl who is not that interesting because the writers didn't make her that interesting which was typical for the time right exactly (laughs) still is and uh (laughs) and he's saying like complete me complete me I'm not Mm -hmm. I'm not like a person without you I need you and I looked up and I was like oh my god I never ever want a Tom Cruise on the doorstep (laughs) telling me to complete them like I really what I want is whatever situation it's in I want there to be like dynamism and us creating something together. I want to be with a whole person Mm -hmm. who is fulfilled. And for me, a lot of that comes from polyamory, Mm -hmm. right? So I don't have, it took the impetus off of me to fulfill someone else's needs entirely. Right. Right. So there were moments like that. Um, Actually, what's really funny is when I, uh, when I came out as bisexual to myself, I actually, for some reason, decided that my mom was going to get freaked out by it. I don't even know. This was just by my bio mom too. Mm. Like I told my other like moms and aunties, I told everybody, but my bio mom. And I, I still cannot tell you why, but it took me a year and eventually I'm sitting there and I'm rocking back and forth on the couch. And I'm like, mom, I have something to tell you. And she's like, okay. And I'm like, I'm bye. She was I know, honey. (laughs) This is the same mom that you couldn't get to squirm from questions. Why would she be? (laughs) I know. I don't need, like, again, like, children, children go through phases. I went through a modest phase to Mm. figure out if that was good for me. Turns out I like being naked too much. (laughs) Uh, You know, and I was going through this phase of like, I don't know if I can trust my mom. Mm. And she was great about it, right? And I freaked out and I cried and this and that. And she was like, sweetie, you have literally been saying this since you were four years old you've always liked all people yeah i was like okay you know so i i had my own discovery and it's been my own journey Mm. and i if like if i have one thing in life i want everyone to be able to be on that journey and not be ashamed of it yeah right i identify as a pansexual person identify as a genderqueer person a kinky polyamorous sex positive person (laughs) all the things but I have come to those conclusions. And often when we talk about childhood and sex, the number one thing is, you know, people are afraid. What about the kids? You know, it's dangerous or whatever. Right. Um, And there's also probably lots of ways to screw it up. (laughs) So how do we, how do we talk about this? How do we do this in such a way that it's not a negative thing? You know, I mean, obviously for me, in my experience, the shaming, especially from a young age, absolutely detrimental and damaging Mm -hmm. across the board Mm -hmm. so we can only really go up from there (laughs) (laughs) right but you don't want to like 
pendulum swing all exactly. the way over to another That's space. what I'm trying to say. Yeah, thank yeah. you. So how do we how do we avoid that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a couple of things that I feel are like really, really solid tools are the idea of um, age appropriateness. And what I mean by that is like a, a good example is testicles. Uh, okay. <laughs> so uh, I went to my mom at one point. Also, like, again, let the youth come to you. Right. Let them come to you with their questions. So you are not forcing anything on them that they're not ready for. I think that's like a big one. And that's a key piece of age appropriateness. Not a small thing either though, because you have to create an environment where they can come to you. So that's the first underlying thing is there has to be a communication structure. Exactly. Exactly. Like a cute, very good. Okay. So let's, let's back it up. Communication structure between the parents involved. Right. And like, and what that looks like inside the home. And then also how to give the youth tools for, going outside of the home. Okay. So like at school, oh, I got in so much trouble. <laughs> like the way I dressed, what I talked about, creating kissy clubs on the playground. <laughs> like there were other parents who were very upset that, that I dissuaded their child of the idea that the stork came to drop off their little brother or sister. Like mm. all, all the things. I you probably some... fucked with Christmas too, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> other podcast. Um, yeah, but, like, I got sent to the principal's office a lot, mm. you know, and in the first and second grade, my parents had to, like, come up with how they were going to interact with my public school to explain, you know, what was going on to them. And then also to me, like, hey, mm. even if people have different thoughts about where babies come from, even if they're stupid, <laughs> we have to respect them. That was an actual conversation with my parents. <laughs> Um, That's awesome. Right? And so then you underlie the age appropriateness. And this is where the testicles come in. Um, So I asked my mom at one point, what was it? I asked somebody, like, what were the things behind the penis? Like, why were they hanging? They were Mm. so differently shaped from everything else. Um, And why was it important that I avoided them when wrestling with my brother? Because I would get in so much trouble for hitting my brother in the balls when we were wrestling. (laughs) But it got him to let go of me every time. This was very practical in my head. (laughs) And so we had to have a talk about, like, they're very sensitive. Um, They're a part of making babies. But they hurt your brother. And they could hurt your brother in the long run. Mm. Right? And so that that was the answer at, like, six. Right? And then the answer at, like... 11 or 12 was so why you said they're a part of making babies how are they a part of making babies Mm -hmm. oh turns out that's where the sperm is held and like that's how you know they're involved in the reproductive process oh okay that makes sense um and then when i was like 17 it was like it seems like they're really sensitive from my experience and then i could talk to my parents about like how to include testicles in sex if you wanted to Mm. Right? So, yeah. like, there was an evolution to how you frame the conversation. Because if you start telling the six-year-old about the anatomy of sperm, they're going to get lost, totally. right? But yeah. the important part is don't hit your brother in the balls <laughs> when wrestling. Right. Because it's going to hurt him potentially long term. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think age appropriateness is, is something to keep in mind. Like, what is the relevant information? And, again, answering the specific question that your child is coming to you with. Um, and then also boundaries. Boundaries are super important. Boundaries are also awesome. I feel like boundaries get a really bad rap, <laughs> yeah. but boundaries are amazing. Absolutely. Um, so things like, like my story about knocking on the door, 
that was a boundary, right? Like we knocked on a door so that there was the opportunity to, for the parents to get into a space of being kid friendly. Right. Right. And being in a family space. So they would put on PJs, you know, until, and they would like, there was one point when, um, I was going through my modest phase that I asked people not to pat me on the butt anymore. Hmm. It just was like a familial thing because I was uncomfortable and I didn't know what to do. And so people said, okay, great. And they Hmm. totally respected it. Or, um, at a certain point, like, I think it was from like eight until 15 or 16. I asked my dad to wear a a cloth around his midsection, um, because I wasn't comfortable seeing him naked. Hmm. And that was a little like, he was a little gruffy about it, you know, <laughs> behind closed doors, but he respected that. And mm. then we had got to have a conversation about like, hey, dad, I'm not feeling uncomfortable about that anymore. Mm. That's totally fine. Right. So in being able to let your children have their own boundaries and then also explaining to them why boundaries are important. And I think this goes back to like, talk to your talk to your children, you know, mm-hmm. like they're mini adults because they are. They are. <laughs> right. So like... <laughs> Again, not just because I said so, but like, here's why it's important. You know, explain what safety is. Explain what mental, emotional, and physical safety are and how they're different. Right. Right? Um, Those, I think, are some of the key pieces. And also, um, let your youth know that like, not everybody in the world thinks this way. And that was always one of the hard things for me. But like, to get really real for a second, I did experience... um, some sexual trauma outside of my family when I was young. Hmm. And that is always kind of like one of those really vulnerable pieces for me because people are like, oh, it's because you came from a sex positive family. And I'm like, mm-mm, Right. Right. But in my mind, there was a really hard lesson that I had to learn about the fact that not everybody is the way of my family. Not right. everybody is asking about boundaries or teaching boundaries to their children. Right. And so it is up to me to hold my own boundaries and to be an educator about those things so that I can keep myself safe. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So also you're going to screw your kids up no matter what, like we all do it in some way or another, (laughs) but those are hopefully some tools so that they don't, um, get sexualized too soon, whatever too soon means. You know, what's interesting is, um, I had to learn the exact same lesson you had to learn in that everybody didn't grow up how I grew up. Mm-hmm. And like the standards I had were not the standards everybody else had. Mm-hmm. So in a way, that weirdness is not actually weird. It's just like <laughs> unique. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's unique to like what, quote, you growing up right. looked like. Yeah. Because I thought that was normal for the world. I was like, oh yeah, everybody waits till marriage to have sex, right? Mm, right. Or they should. Or right. everybody you know, should aspire to that. Mm-hmm. Turns out not a lot of people aspire to that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Me neither, but <laughs> <laughs> but you came to that decision. On- I'm pretty I'm pretty sure that most people can probably just assume what the downsides of growing up in a poly kinky, um, sex friendly environment are. But I bet you they're not what most people think they are. Nope. What would you say they are? Um, I mean, we we touched on a little bit of like having to kind of readjust to what other people think mm-hmm. and like the difference between home and the rest of the world. Yeah. But what else? Um. Well, specifically, like, so as a kid, <clears throat> there was also a lot of isolation, right? Um, what not, do you mean? Not only from, like, like at school. It wasn't just the youth's parents. 
It was the youth themselves because yeah. they were being raised in spaces where that wasn't a thing you talked about and therefore it was weird. Right. That, and I mean, I'm already a weird kid. Let's be, <laughs> let's be honest. But like specifically when it's like, it's the experience of like you being the kid in sexual health class in fifth grade, that terrible sexual health that was taught by the nurse who like was all dry, you know, and like all of that. And you're the one kid who's like excitedly raising their hand all the time. Answering I'm so prepped for this class. All the questions. Like I'm so prepped for this. Everyone just kind of looks at you like, right. or like, um, I actually got quite a bit of, um, homophobia as a youth too. Cause I knew, like I knew I liked people, all sorts of people from a young age and my schoolmates, my female schoolmates and I would experiment with each other and we would like guise it up by like playing house near the husband and right. the wife sure, and like sure. play around. But like we were doing stuff <laughs> and, um, then it was right around the time that puberty started to hit for some of us. Um, it was like not talked about and it was something that like, and it just ended up distancing us from each other. And I actually got the brunt of uh, the rumor mill. And so there were moments of like people, there were rumors that I was paying girls to do this stuff with me, or I was forcing them to do stuff with me. Um, I got written up on the bathroom walls and this is in like fourth and fifth grade. Um, and I got like, ostracized as being that weird lesbian kid Mm. and um and I hadn't I wasn't even really out at that point I was just hanging out with my friends and I thought it was okay Mm. um so like that was that was pretty significant for me um there was a lot of isolation around being sexually aware and sex positive I also was um that also very much like dovetailed into people thinking that I was a slut and that I was having all the sex all the time and I actually didn't lose my virginity until I was 18. Mm. And so when other people were out having sex, <laughs> I was the one who was like being touted as the town slut. And mm. I, I wasn't, you know, mm. I knew I had my boundaries. <laughs> right. I didn't want to emotionally attach to somebody in that way, or I didn't feel ready. Um, so that, that like other people's presumptions thing was really difficult. Um, and then now as an adult, it's, <laughs> I would say like one of one of the downsides, it's not really a downside, is like I am the fountain of knowledge. <laughs> it's a good thing I like to talk about this kind of stuff because I'm talking about it all the time. I'm yeah. teaching my lovers why it's important to me that they get tested every six months or why I have to get tested every six months and they need to be thinking about that. It's um it's not very often, is it? <laughs> hey. I get tested more than I think. Four to six months, just depending on yeah. how many new partners and what my partners ask of me. But that right, is yeah, a totally. general, like, every yeah. six months is generally yeah, for good rule of thumb. most of, of people in committed relationships is a good rule of thumb. Also, hot tip, you can stagger, if you're in a partnership, you can stagger your testing. So one of you is getting tested. Yes. Right? Yeah. About every three months. Nice. Yeah. yeah. It's cool stuff. Um, so like, that's one thing is just like consistently, cause also like in my adult life, I am a happy slut. I'm mm-hmm. same. Right. I'm yeah. totally down with like being open in that way, but I can't pick people up at bars. 
You know? Yeah. That just for me, I have not found successful situations where I feel safe enough and like this person has enough awareness of themselves to communicate with me in a respectful way in the bedroom and for me to trust their safety. Yeah. And so I end up educating them instead <laughs> and that's fine. And then they want to bone and then uh, I'm like, no. And then uh, it's, you know what I mean? Yeah. So that's interesting. And then also, um, and this comes a little bit more out of the polyamory piece, but like, um, I am very in tune with how to communicate with other people on an emotional level. I read people well. Um, I, I feel like I feel more integrated with like interpersonal communication in every aspect of my life Hmm. and going into corporate America (laughs) or even like the quote unquote professional world, um, in certain ways, there is no space for that. Mm. It is. And it, it, to me, I don't understand. (laughs) I'm having real struggle not engaging with people in a holistic and compassionate way. Or if I am not receiving that back, which again, feels like school feels like all the trauma I received in school. So it's like, where is the space for us to find egalitarianism within professional structures, you know, or, or like leadership styles or authentic, vulnerable leadership and communicate communication in leadership or, you know, like these ways of relating that, is way more authentic without being, um, without people taking advantage of each other or without people like, um, sapping, you know, things like that. I understand why professionalism exists, but I do also recognize that like there's high turnover, there's burnout. So many people are unhappy at their jobs. And that's like, that all speaks to culture. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Just like so much of this competitive vitriol that wouldn't need to be there. And also then how does that affect our productivity in totally. our society. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's something that I've been thinking about quite often recently. And I think it, it's, it sort of dovetails into this, right? Like Absolutely. knowing self, knowing boundaries and being compassionate for other humans. As a kid, you were talking about catching labels like slut. What, what were some of the other lab- negative labels that you received? Uh, um, if you really want to hash, hash this out. That's fine. Um, there was slut. I also was um, a thicker kid, like mm-hmm. I was a pudgy kid um, before I gained my my curves and found my <laughs> curvy identity. Mm-hmm. I did struggle with like sizest stuff, so which is also interesting. Mm-hmm. Like the the fact that I was heavier than a lot of my peers, um, for some reason, like a fat slut. Or like mm. a like a fat cow or a fat pig. Right. People would call me moo. People would call me oink. Wow. Um, all sorts of that, like meant that I wanted it more, and therefore, like, in their eyes, made me an even bigger slut because I was more desperate because I was right. overweight. Um, that was always fascinating to me. <laughs> that's that's dehumanizing in a lot of ways. Yeah. 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 And it was not consensual. Obviously. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's more fun when it's, cons- well, it's only fun. It's, when it's only cons- fun when it's consensual. consensual yeah. yeah. Um, so there was quite a bit of that. Um, and then I got a lot of like the, the sex positivity came through in the harassment that I received through queerness and through sizeism and through, um, like not not as much the polyamory and I really didn't talk to people about kink at that time. Right. Um, but I mean like I would get called a pervert, you know, I would get mm. called a weirdo, I would get called um 
per, not perverse, but like unholy, you mm. know, I would get called yeah. the, the devil. Sure. Um, so I think that there, it came through in a lot of different ways, <clears throat> but one of the things I also teach, um, and I'm, you know, constantly thinking about systematic oppression in our society. And when you straight up look at it, there isn't a quote unquote ism for sexual proclivity. So we know that Puritanism in our society is um, pushed up like as an ideal. And yet, because we are a consumerist capitalist society, sex sells. Mm -hmm. And so um, like exhibitionism of sex is used because like, so you have like Puritan as the ideal. And so then like, oh, I'm going to titillate you with all of this sex because you know, you shouldn't want it. It almost makes sex sell better. It does. It totally does. That system is fully built. So when you move away from that. And you embrace sexuality, but don't over-sensationalize it, then you are in a minority. Yeah. And you do receive, like we've been talking about, harassment and and mistreatment in certain ways. Like I receive... <laughs> I hate new conversations with my doctor. <laughs> I, I mean, I hate them until I just get on my high horse and just start like slaughtering them with facts and being like, no, you will test me for both kinds of HSV every six months. Which you have to do. Which you do have to you do, have but to they do. don't want to nope. because it costs a lot of money mm-hmm. and it's not the best test in the world. I'm like, so yeah. let's figure out how to make it a better test, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> right. Sorry, that was a tangent. But like yeah. there is there are certain ways that the systems and institutions want to marginalize you. But there is no like we have the term slut shaming. Mm-hmm. Right. And that is a term that is about five years old. You know, yeah. it's it's a new concept and there isn't necessarily um, a full community identity around this concept. Or how to implement it into social justice. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier you were talking about being the fountain of youth. Obviously that applies for the doctors sometimes too. Yeah. Wait, fountain of knowledge? Fountain of knowledge, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I am not the fountain of youth. <laughs> FYI. Fountain of knowledge. Um, and so I imagine uh, nowadays you have a lot of friends ask questions. Mm-hmm. When did that start? When did, when, that, when did people start coming to you for answers? I would say that started in a, in a broad way. Like my best friend, my best friends and I kind of had those conversations when I was a youth, but, um, that really started when I actually found my queer community as a teenager. Gotcha. Um, I was blessed enough to have a really rad drop-in center that I attended in Seattle. Um, shout out to Lambert house. (laughs) And it was there that we actually had a sex dating and relationships group. And I remember the day that uh, we would all vote on what topic we wanted to talk about that week. And so the topic was polyamory and I like lit up like a light bulb <laughs> and the, <laughs> the facilitator knew me really well. And she was like, okay, so I know that you have a lot of information on this topic, but like, let's share the, share the air. And I was like, okay, okay. And I like sat on my hands. Um, but it was like that crew of, of people, the people that I ran with at that drop-in center who were like having all of the queer teen relationship drama. It was so delightful now that I look back on it. And they were like constantly coming to me with like, I feel like, I feel like I want to open my relationship. And I'm like, okay, let's talk about it. Right. And that's also the place where I, um, I began a lot of my like work and learning around uh, gender and non-binary gender and gender identity and 
Um, and since then, that's also become a really uh, big and focused part of my internal work and journey. And so, and I post a lot of things about it. And I talk about it a lot in my, my sex education. My sex education is very much for everybody, including mm. non-binary people. And so when cisgender people come to my classes, they're like, what? what you know (laughs) and that's great I love it and so and also now that um transgender rights are getting a lot of like really fast growing media attention in the past Mm. two years um there's there's been this huge upsurgence of people who are like let's talk about this you know I have questions can we do this like I have literally had two lunches this week Mm. to talk about gender with, with my friends and I'm down, you Mm. know, I'm totally down to talk about it. (laughs) Um, yeah. And like in that way, that's been one place where my parents have actually sort of had to catch up is using they, them pronouns when in reference to me or anybody, but specifically their child has been rough for them. Mm. Um, or like the idea of them having transgendered lovers like they both have now had transgendered lovers and play partners and they're like so excited to tell me about it i'm like great this is a person and they're like yeah but like there's so much more to it you know like so working with them on their journey around how because they thought you know well in the 80s and 90s we're all bohemian and like we know all the weird things and now the world is changing and they're like there are weirder things and i'm like i know it's great and this is exactly how you raised me is to be accepting and realistic right, about this right. so like engaging with them in that way has actually been a really cool way to um relay their teachings that they taught me yeah mm-hmm. they're like these you were basically able to say to them, these are the things you taught me. I universalized them. This is what it looks like from a pure perspective. Oh, that is such a concise way to put... Yes. Now I have to send this podcast to my parents. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah. So if we want to delve into the kink-specific aspect of my raising, that's something that is even more, like, taboo and fearful for people outside of the community. Oh, yeah. Because it is highly erotic and it is um, somewhat extremist in a lot of ways it can be. Um, so what that journey looked like for me and specifically how to be kink positive for your children, um, is to like normalize it, but definitely make sure that the context is available and in place when you're talking about this with um, your youth. And my experience, and I appreciated this was we started that conversation at about 12 or 13 Um, And we really didn't discuss it before that. Um, If your youth find, find your toys, you know, or something, you just call them toys, right? right? Like you have toys, mommy has toys. Or, you know, also a lot of the, the toys that are used have different applications. So you can talk about like, there's this funny story where one of my moms is a beautiful flogger maker. She's incredible. Mommy ogre toys. Um, and she was showing it off to my grandparents because that's her style. (laughs) And my little cousin was like, what does this do? And my grandmother, the farmer and rancher, like the 80 year old farmer and rancher girl was like, this is how you herd cattle. Yep. You take this and you smack cattle and that's how you make sure the herd stays together. And I was like, go grandma. (laughs) Yes. Like It's not wrong. (laughs) It's not wrong. Right. So there are ways to like work with that when the youth is really, really young. Um, But also, um, 
when they get to be in their teens and like puberty is hitting, they may have desires that they don't understand. Hmm. Uh, lots of kinky people speak to this, right? Hmm. Um, also note things like, if your kid is tying up their teddy bear more than once or twice, <laughs> might be an indicator. Just saying, you know, and just watch for those little things. Right. Um, but uh, we had some really cool ways of normalizing things in context. So the first time that I ever used a safe word was when my brother and I were wrestling each other. Interesting. Right. So, you you know, your sibling gets you into this hold and then... Or for tickling. Tickling was actually more common. But, like, holding you down and tickling you and tickling you and you seriously need it to stop. Right. And you say, no, 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 and that's not being listened to. We had to institute a safety word. Mm. So whenever my brother and I heard that word, we would automatically stop whatever we were doing and figure out a different way to play together. Hmm. This was at six. Right, yeah. Right? And it, yeah. it has always worked. Yeah, because it's, it's the principle. It's not the application. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, because kink eroticizes principles. That's right. what it does, totally. right? And yeah. so if you teach those principles, that makes sense. And so then when I was older, my parents were able to say, do you remember safety words? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And they're like, here's how you can use them. And I'm like, whoa. So, like, you know, pulling in that way. Um, and, like... Showing showing you how to do things. Mm -hmm. My father was the one who taught me how to throw a flogger. Mm. And it was beautiful. Like, he taught me about the anatomy of the body and where to hit and not hit. And how to throw something so that you weren't hurting yourself or throwing out your own back or shoulder. Um, he gifted me floggers on my 18th birthday that he had made. Mm. Uh, they're beautiful. Um, and... A really cute moment was there was our local kink club that we actually went to together, and he had uh, somebody who I knew he played with. Um, <clears throat> she offered to be a stunt bottom, and so I knew her, and I felt comfortable with her, and I knew how to communicate with her, and he taught me, like, so here's how you negotiate, and here's what you do, and remember how we talked about this and this, and then we did, like, dual flogging on her to teach me how to flog on a human. Hmm. And then proceeded to freak out the entire rest of the kink club because they were like, too much. That is so fucked up. <laughs> it was great. Right. Yeah. But it was like my dad teaching me to ride a bicycle or swim, you know, now it was teaching me how to flog right, and that yeah. was great. And so like every time that I use those vloggers that he gave me, I feel that connection to my dad. Interesting. Yeah. And that doesn't convolute the sexual element to it. Um, not for me, because then there's also the mind fuck of, like, telling my bottom, like, hey, guess who made these? And then they're uh. like, oh, God. And then I, you know, that's really fun for me. Um, <laughs> you know. Make them, like, really question a lot of things. Oh, yeah. Like, they're an extra pervert for playing with me right. in this way. Right. So that's cool. Mm. Um, we also, we did have to... Specifically, when I was getting into kink at my local kink club, my dad was very much involved at the time. And so we had to talk about what our boundaries were together at the club. Mm -hmm. And I actually have different boundaries with different parents mm -hmm. because they're different relationships. Sure. Um, but, like, my dad cannot handle seeing me get beaten. That's like somebody's beating his child and that's not okay. Yeah. So I would like let him know like, hey, I'm having an impact scene next week. Mm. And fortunately at this club, there were multiple rooms. So he would go into another room where he would go and take a break and go get coffee or whatever. Um, and that was okay. Um, 
I can't, I don't want to watch my parents have sex. I'm not, that's a place that I have a boundary. I'm not that open. So if he was having a sexual scene, then I would leave the space. Mm. Right. Or like we would let the DM know Mm. the the dungeon monitor and say like, Hey, we both want to play. Uh, this actually happened. Um, we would both like to play. Could you please put up a curtain between Mm. these two play spaces? Cause the dungeon was really full that night and they were like, okay. (laughs) And they knew us. And so they knew that that was okay. But like it, you know, yeah. it gave us that separation of space and mm. we were, we've learned how to be respectful of each other. When you're telling me about your dad introducing you and in, not introducing you to, but like walking you through how to do these things. Mm-hmm. My first instinct now is like, Oh okay, of course. Yeah. <laughs> but like, and then my second instinct is like the, uh, the one I probably used to have was like, Whoa, what the <laughs> fuck? Like that's, how do you even, um, I think that's probably a pretty hard concept for a lot of people to really, grasp mm-hmm. i mean it seems very foreign the idea of having such good boundaries with an adult who is your parent that you know you you know it doesn't ever cross a line into some sort of territory that makes either one of you uncomfortable you know how, how do you how do you negotiate that i guess is what i'm saying oh okay um <laughs> <laughs> not a question until the area right well <laughs> see that, that's one of those things is like in my mind i have not known another way yeah. And so when people are so freaked out about it, I'm like, but, but it works, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. so negotiations started before I turned 18 because when I was 18, then I had access to go and be a part of the kink community. Right. Right. I mean, my girlfriend and I were doing kinky shit all on our <laughs> own. Um, uh, and that was fine. Yeah. But like, I think there was education that was happening around what kink is. And why we do it. And that was really valuable. So I was developing a sense and rapport for what that could mean for me. Slash what my parents were doing to each other. Mm. Right? It's very different to hear your parents having sex. Than it is for your parents to be whipping and beating and screaming. Yep. And then having sex. Yep. And all I want to do is go to bed at 11 o'clock. Uh, that was probably my biggest frustration as a teenager, honestly, oh, really? was just the constant chorus. <laughs> uh, I mean, not constant, but like there was a lot of it going on and some right. of it was really kinky and I'm like, I just want to sleep. <laughs> um, but like, so that was a part of the negotiation. Like, hey, can we not do this? You know, while I'm trying to sleep. Right. You know that I can hear it because our walls are thin. Right. Right. Um, And so, like, it started with things like that. And then when I actively, like, started to get into the community, before, like, my my 18th birthday, I spent at the kink club. And I invited Mm. all my friends, and I asked all my parents not to be there. Fair. So that I could have that night to myself and orient to the space. Yeah. And they said yes. They were down. They were were really comfortable with that. Most of them. Um, (laughs) There were a few that were like, ugh. I had a scene that night and then my other parents would be like, come on. (laughs) Um, And, and so there are like negotiations that happen outside of space. Yeah. Right. And so you can intellectualize them. You can be very comfortable with, um, with the concepts that are coming forth. And then like, and then it's also, you remember how we talked about before with the, the safe word. It's what is the context? So what is the context of, um, me, or my dad, like, not being able to see me get beaten. Mm. That somebody beating his child. And he mm. understands that, for him, he's a protective papa bear. <laughs> and so, he can't... Like, he... It's hard for him to, like, 
Um, he can support me in that in a conceptual way, but he viscerally can't handle being around it. Right. Right? So inside context is not safe for him. Right? So I let him know, and so he can take care of himself. Hmm. Right? Um, but at the same time, like, when you're both kinky and, like, dead, you beat on people, too. So, like, <laughs> can't you understand? Um, you know, and there's only one thing that ever really, like, weirded them out. And I'm not going to tell you. Um, but it was really interesting to, like, work with them on how, like, where that freak out comes from. And then it made them look at their own internal, like, biases and right. whys. And I talked about, well, like, I'm safe, you know, here. And, and I got to ask them, like, what are the ways that I can make this place safe? Hmm. And then we got to talk about it together and I got to do my own research and bring it to them. And so like we, I didn't need their permission, but I wanted to be able to be fully honest and open with them. Right. And that's always been one of the tenets between my parents and I is open honesty. And that like that tenant of our relationships means that there is so much else that leads to poor communication that we don't abide by. Yeah, totally. Because we both know the value because they weren't able to be this open with their parents about a lot of things in their life, not even just sexuality, but so right. many other things. Right. And that this is something that I, I knew I could have rebelled. Mm. You know? My siblings and the, the, the other youth and children that I grew up with from all the other households, we all turned out to be different people. Not everybody's poly. Not everybody's sex positive. Right. Right? I am those things. And so I knew I had opportunity to rebel, but there was something so valuable to me in being able to be open and honest with my parents and engage in these communications that feel so much better to me <laughs> than anything else I've come across. Yeah. You know? Um that there, there wasn't really a reason to rebel. Yeah. There wasn't anything to rebel against. I tried so hard. <laughs> I, was, I just failed. Where'd you put all that teen angst? <laughs> slam poetry. <laughs> so much slam poetry. <laughs> Would you be willing to help me debunk anecdotally a kink myth? Sure. So did your parents ever non-consensually beat you as a child? Only... <laughs> Funny story. Um, I only ever got spanked three times as a child. Okay. Um, I never got beaten with fists. I never got choke slammed or anything like that. Okay. But like I got, I got spanked. Um, and I think once was like just on a whim, but the other times, the other two times it was like, okay, something has gone wrong. Hmm. Now we're going to do this now. And they were like fairly, from what I remember, rational about it. But and this was only by my uh, bio parents, hmm. not by my non-bio parents. They, right. that is not, they would never had permission from my bio parents to do that. Right. Um, but both of them have come to me and said, we couldn't do it. Like yeah. it just felt horrible. Yeah. And we tried it once and we're like, nope, never like, <laughs> no, not a thing. Yeah. So for them, they understood that it was not a way, it is never a way to take out your anger on someone else. And that is one of the things that we talked about very specifically as I was learning kink, it, like as a teenager is you do not do it. If you cannot come to the situation in a rational headspace before you start, 
you do not engage. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And um, that's sort of how they felt about spanking. And it's also, it's it's not useful. Right? So again... What, if it was useful, you'd only have to do it a few times. <laughs> and it would just work. Right. So what we... Again, it was context. So what we would do was... Um, there was no worst thing that you could ever do in my family than lie. Hmm. Um, and if you did lie, then there was like different punishment for how the severity of the lie. But we would do things like, um, like we did some nose in a corner stuff or we would do, um, work trade. You know, you would have to go and like, like care for the space that you lived in. Um, you would have to come to my parents with a plan of like how you were going to change your behavior. And we would talk about why that behavior wasn't okay. Hmm. Um, you know, that's the sort of stuff that we did. We did like mm. cause and effect, right? Instead of brutality, mm. you know. How do you think that your parents and your relationship with violence as a punishment, uh, how do you think that translates to you, you enjoying impact, impact play today? Mm. Um, oh, fascinating. I'm asking these questions because I have my own answers and I want to hear yours first and I think they're going to be the same. Okay. Oh, that's very exciting. Um, so I think that I was, because there was actually a D or a non-focus on violence as a punishment that I don't have negative associations with it that I have to work through. And like, I find that with kink, there are sort of two paths. Like either you have associations with it that you have to work through mm. and you are choosing to do through, do so through eroticism. Right. Or you don't have associations with this thing so you can build positive associations with it right. through eroticism. Mm. And for me, impact play was the latter. Mm. Um, so I, I have been able to experience like, the sensation of getting beaten or getting slapped and have that be like, wow, what does that do to my nerves and body? <laughs> and like, I didn't know my body would react that way. Mm. Um, yeah. So for me, I think the, the actual de-emphasis on it was valuable so I could develop a positive rapport with it. Mm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. What are your answers? <laughs> so, uh, as I kind of alluded to earlier, highly religious household. Mm -hmm. So spanking was the godly thing to do and mm. it was to, you know, help me become a better person. So I was regularly beaten with a special paddle that was built for my parents that had scriptures on it. Wow. Yeah. It was wooden. Um, yeah. So that was, that for me was like a lot of non-consensual things mm -hmm. and a lot of religious things. Mm -hmm. And those seem very different than my consensual erotic things. You know what I mean? Yeah. They don't seem at all related. Right. This seems like childhood violence and religiosity, and this mm -hmm. feels like consensual play with another adult for pleasure. You know right. what I mean? So yeah, yeah. for me, they're very different buckets. But I, I hear a lot of people say, you're into spanking because you weren't spanked, or you're into spanking because you were spanked, mm. and it just doesn't correlate, you know right. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. what I hear is is the context and the container for it. Like, you are building new associations w within a positive, safe container for yourself. Absolutely, yeah. Right, so that you can dis disassociate <laughs> um, the, the negative ones from when you were younger. Yeah. Fascinating. Right? Yeah, <laughs> that's really cool. I'm wondering if there is anything like that for me. And I think, like, there's stuff for me around, like protocol and doing something correctly like that I have a lot of stuff around because having three moms like 
three moms, a dad, an uncle who were all raising me, plus their lovers and like partners. It was there's so many people to look up to. There's so <laughs> many ways that you can like like drive yourself frustrated with needing to be the best at something or yeah. needing to do something correctly. Even if they're not putting that impetus on you, right. that's just still a lot of people that you want to make happy. Yeah, exactly. And so for me, like protocol and like, and they also always told me like, never let somebody else put you down. Hmm. Right. So just the idea of like being immovable and like completely at the surrender of another person, just be, just because I said so <laughs> that I have such a hard time with. <laughs> uh. So, a uh, slightly tangential question. Sure. Uh, and this is just for me. I don't know if it'll make it on the podcast. <laughs> um, what is best practices around asking pronouns? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so best practices about asking pronouns are like enveloping it as a natural part of your conversation. Okay. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> Hi, my name's Ko. I right. use they them pronouns. Okay. Oh, you know, oh, introducing your own pronouns. Mm-hmm. Oh, starting there. Okay, mm-hmm. that makes a lot more sense. Because yeah. I'm, I'm thinking like, what's your name? What's your pronoun? It yeah. seems a little too direct to it me. Could be, but yeah. also if you do it for everybody, yeah, then it's a natural part of how you're interacting with somebody. So mm-hmm. yeah, introducing your own mm-hmm. is valuable. If somebody doesn't, and you have a question, you would say, <laughs> um, I'm. I would really like to respect, you know, who you are. What pronouns can I use for you? Right. And what pronouns can I use for you? Right. Is a nice phrasing that I found. Um, If people don't know, like one of my favorite things that I experience almost every day is uh, a cisgendered person, somebody whose gender and biology and presentation uh, match and they feel happy with that. Mm -hmm. Um, Who's never thought about pronouns before. I'm like, hey, what what are your pronouns? And they're like, I... uh, uh. I'm a half a step above that. Okay, good to know. Uh, often people end up saying, well, I'm straight, or well, I'm gay, or well, I'm bi. And I'm like, nope, not, totally, not the question. Totally fair. <laughs> right. Totally fair. Actually, sexuality and gender are different. Right. Um, so sometimes, uh, what I'll, if you come across that confusion, what you can do is say, like, um, so gender pronouns are, you know, like he or she or they or them, mm. but definitely enveloping non-gender, non-binary gender pronouns into right. that listing. Right. Um, you see like, this is how, if I were to refer to you, I would say, Hey, I hung out with Ko today right. and then I did a podcast. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So just giving like those quick little one-liners, um, it's, it's actually not that awkward or if it is, then you can say like. Yeah, I'm a nerd about it. <laughs> you know, that's an easy way to get being a nerd yeah. is sexy now. Absolutely, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got to be honest. I'm pretty. I don't know if it's envious or jealous that you kind of got to this so quickly and so young, and it took me so long. <laughs> and like, I had to like get into adulthood and then like fight through all this shit and then like educate myself. Mm-hmm. And you kind of. It sounds like you kind of poured into your twenties with like skills and tools and boundaries <laughs> Rawr. Yeah. yeah um so fun fact envy and jealousy so jealousy is putting the resentment onto a person mm. envy you're feeling envious oh, okay, envy yeah, yeah. is at a situation uh, so our situations were different right and you're like oh yeah if i, had, I wish i had like that you <laughs> covet the other situation yeah but it doesn't feel like you hate me <laughs> right just envious just envious <laughs> Yeah. I um, need to stop using jealous in general though, because most of the time I'm talking about envy. 
Isn't that right? And most yeah. people don't know the difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And again, like when we do our big fat polyamory uh, <laughs> podcast, I'll talk all about that. <laughs> um, I, I was just chatting with this girl I've been seeing and she just had another group play session last night. And I'm like, oh, oh I'm so jealous. But now I'm realizing I was like, no, I, ha- I was I had crazy amounts of compersion. Yeah. I was just envious that I wasn't there, that I, I didn't get to do it with her. Yeah, like totally. Yeah. So how are you going to fix that? Fix what? Fix your your envy. Well, we're gonna do it together with. Oh, we got we got okay, co- coordinating. Right, trying to find all, people. It's all about the coordination. She has these three people that are like on the hook, mm-hmm. and she, with, with the same three people, she's been able to do this group play. What? She, San Diego, Mexico. The scenery changes, but the dynamic. It's cheating. It's cheating. I'm envious now. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah. So. Cool. Yep. Anything else you want to cover? I'm feeling good. Yeah, this is good. This is a lot. Excellent. <laughs> Can't help but agree. That was very, very good. Uh, I especially really appreciated hearing a lot of the discussion that I know that we shy away from, which is how children learn to um, discover their bodies and then eventually that in the context of what it's like to then form relationships and be a sexual adult, even from your parents, which seems... Something I think pretty taboo and strange, but we know it happens. Uh, we look at the people that we admire in our lives, and we try to emulate the things uh, good and then avoid the things bad that we saw growing up. So Co uh, has actually gone on to then be a teacher in all of these areas, which it's very clear to see where that expertise comes from. Uh, you can find Co at cocreation at gmail.com or at cocreates on Twitter. Uh, likewise, if you have any feedback for us, you can always email us at bandthispod at gmail.com or find us at bandthispodcast on Twitter. See you next time.